We are all on this planet together. God has lent the land to us. This blue small planet. So that we may feed each other. Is only our home. Not as something which we simply seize and squeeze dry. Good afternoon. We have to take care. So the, if we, if we, this uh, is the biggest if, if story the in the world. If we can use this session, uh, and there, episode there, there nine. Are six things that I would like to get out of it. About faith. Like. The first is what is the focus? So I'm very keen that this stays. Well, there was this big meeting down in the um, conference room, and we'd all been asked to go along. And as the story was laid out. I thought, as usual, The Guardian is completely overlooking the role and importance of religion in this story. Interesting rabbit warrens in, in which X says Y and B says Z. Andrew Brown is one of The Guardian's leader writers. And I um, write about, I have also written about religion quite a lot for my sins. Second question is, what is the mixture of reporting and campaigning? I just said that we really needed to keep an eye on what the churches and the faith groups generally were doing about this, because partly they're very good at motivating people, and partly they have the constituencies among the, the, the poor people who are going to be most immediately affected. Let us pray. The Guardian has been running a climate conversion program for the last couple of months in the form of its divestment campaign. But religious groups around the world have been preaching about climate change for much longer. We know that climate change is now the biggest threat to increasing poverty around the world. Because people... In parish churches, city mosques, it's across faith. Even the Dalai Lama is preaching the climate message. Climate condition, environment things are really very, very serious. This is the issue of humanity, not this nation or that nation. You'll see people, you know, flocking to the mosque. You'll see literally thousands of people during the Friday prayers. Potentially huge audiences coming every week looking for ethical guidance to live by. Jesus may not speak directly of environmental issues, as he? yet clearly Jesus holds an appreciation of God's creation. If you're in church regularly, you are in the business of looking for moral causes. You're there because you think your life is better for a, for a spiritual aspect expressed in daily action. And climate change, climate change activism is, is a big part of this. The burning of fossil fuels is pumping tons and tons of greenhouse gas now, both the church and the Guardian are no strangers to preaching on moral causes, but their stories are different. The Guardian tends to use facts and rationality to persuade, whereas religion tends to use storylines that are more poetic and human. Jesus holds an appreciation of 
appreciation of God's creation. In the Abrahamic traditions, there were two key narratives used to inspire the congregation. When Jesus declares, consider the birds of the air. The first. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather the on feed. Christian belief of God as creator and as of us as being stewards of that creation. The beauty of the planet around them. There is the tradition deriving from the, the creation myth that God has called us to look after the earth. The stuff of the world is not our possession. It's not something given us to, to put in our pockets. We're supposed to use it with an eye to what happens to it in the future. Essentially, the story of the Garden of Eden has God handing over the earth to Adam, saying, this is yours, look after it. The Prophet Muhammad, throughout his life, he was an environmental pioneer, but also a social justice activist. And you can see many, many examples of this. If you look at the Quran, there's actually over 750 verses in the Quran quoting the environment as, as God's creation. And I think a lot of the people who feel an emotional tug not so much towards saving humanity, but towards saving the, the, the beauty of the world and the delicacy and diversity of the ecosystem, would describe that in, in spiritual terms in some way. The second story is one of humanity and justice. Those who bear the heaviest burden in relation to climate change are those least well-equipped for it, those who are poorest and most vulnerable in our world, whose lives and livelihood are undermined, largely because of decisions taken elsewhere and lifestyles adopted elsewhere. We cannot claim to be just, to be righteous, to be in right relationship with God or anything else if we just stand back and settle into complacency about the fact that those most at risk carry the heaviest burden. That sense of who is my neighbour, and my neighbour being the poorest, the outside of the most remote, the people who are most affected by this. Second thing is uh, even more elusive but very real, the notion of justice to the next generation. For me as a Christian, the church is the community of all those who are involved in God's purposes, past, present and future. And the world I leave to the future, to my children and grandchildren, the world we all leave to the next generation. We have to ask, is that a world in which our descendants have the same opportunities, the same freedoms we have, or have we restricted the possibilities of our children and grandchildren by the decisions we make or fail to make today? So justice, both in terms of a right attitude to the world we're in, and in the sense of a right attitude to present and future human beings, I think that's become more and more prominent in discussion in the last few years. How's your niece? But it's not just about a good yarn. If it was only that, the Guardian would simply need a twist in its tail. Religion has much, much more. Oh, I don't. I can't wait for the sun to come out. But I'm good. It's good to see you this morning. Thank you, Anna. Uh, you go into that church and it fulfills every need. And I'm not ta just talking about your spiritual longing. The Guardian's yeah. Suzanne Goldenberg lives in the U.S. And I say this as a non-believer. 
you go into the church and there is a coffee shop right there and it will serve you breakfast. There are places you can go within that church for job counseling, career training, there is child care, there's real estate advice. Every need of your temporal life can be served right there in the lobby. Look around and if you haven't spoke to somebody sitting around you, make sure you stop and speak to them. Then you go into the congregation. Just look at your name and say, neighbor, this is my prophetic prayer. In the churches I've been to, there's like a light show, there's great music, there's great singing, there's an inspirational speech, there's a feeling of warmth, and it wraps up in an hour. The participation in church services, the singing, the getting up and down, the kneeling, well, people don't kneel anymore, but the, the bodily movement, all these tend to take people into the story and keep them there. Jesus said that the nations would be perplexed about the changing of the tides. Once the, the, the care for the planet becomes part of this message, once that's also understood as something that God wants you to do, then it begins to saturate your awareness of everyday life. On your seats, you'll see the carbon fast proposals, which in a wonderfully well-focused way show you some of the things you can do simply to signal Awareness. Again, global awareness. Religious rituals take you into the meaning of what you're doing. So if you put on things like fasting, as a traditional part of, of many religions, and then you can just take that fast and give it a slight twist and say, we are fasting in solidarity with the people who don't have enough to eat. And immediately you're doing this thing physically to your own body, which takes on a meaning, and that is much, much more effective than simply reading something. I think it's also true that, um, certainly in my own religious tradition, image, symbol, metaphor, these are routine parts of how we communicate. I wonder, have you ever held a child when it was sleeping? Have you ever seen the sunrise? Have you ever stared into a fireplace when it's snowing outside? Have you ever thrown a stick and have a dog bring it back to you? Have you ever been transported to heaven by listening to Handel or watching a Shakespeare performance? One of the things that religious thought does is provide a link between the awe you feel at a sunset and the, the tenderness and love you feel for a baby that you hold, and suggest that they're part of the same thing. And then you draw the whole earth, the, the, the preservation of the, of the earth, into that circle of awe and value. And that is kind of exactly what religions are in the business of doing. So as well as the rituals and the physical community setup, there's a whole different language too. It's a question of love, isn't it? The church has much to offer which the government and science cannot. We, not they, own the language of sacrifice, forgiveness, simplicity, restraint. If even in some relatively minor way, the way we live is contributing, to the vulnerability, to the risk, 
of somebody elsewhere in our world. We are challenged to challenge that. Now, for this climate project, The Guardian has steered well away from focusing on us as individuals, from the energy and resources that we use. Move the blame from the consumers to the producers. That was the new tactic they wanted to try. But whether it's Buddhism or Islam, Anglicanism or Catholicism, all the faiths seem to focus on what we personally can do. There have been very specific campaigns addressed to churches, to parishes, to have a kind of environmental audit. Local volunteers from within mosques and communities are leading on these issues. Are we turning the lights off? Are we thinking about our heating? The East London Mosque has 30,000 bees on its roof. A few years ago when I was still at Lambeth Palace, we decided that Lambeth Palace ought to have a, an energy audit. And that was a rather alarming result. I can tell you it gave us a lot to think about. We've seen cycling clubs. So Maid will be holding the largest Muslim bike ride in, in Europe. Going to have 300 cyclists riding from mosque to mosque to simulate the five prayers and to actually pray the five prayers in, in different mosques. I swore off flying for a year. For example, the Bishop of London did something similar, just to keep it in the public eye a bit. I think this is one of the most important messages we can get. And the church isn't in a bad place to deliver that message. In other words, don't be intimidated by the scale of the problem. There is almost certainly something very small scale and practical that you can actually do, which will make a small and measurable difference. So if it's our responsibility to take action, by implication, we're also responsible for the mess that we're in. Sounds like blame. Nobody wants to be told that they're a sinner, even when they are. At the same time, the individual action helps. Remember that if you're in the congregation, there's a kind of presumption that you're part of the solution and not part of the problem. When we tell people to, to, you know, that they're wrecking stuff, that tells them they're part of the problem with no obvious hope of becoming part of the solution. But religions, they do have a narrative of, you know, you were a sinner and now you're forgiven and now you can do better. So it's easier in that sense, for religious leaders to condemn people without putting them off because they are always offering them a way out. And I think there's a difference between blame and responsibility, that it's, it's not my fault that the fossil fuels are being taken, um, but it is my responsibility to speak out against it. So blame, I don't think, works, but um, the invitation to people to step up to being better, because it means sacrifice. It means doing things differently. You know, it means we're not going to be able to sustain all the electric gadgets that we all now are starting to become very dependent upon. It all has something to do with us. And not only is the church pointing the finger at us, it's also asking us to sacrifice our beloved possessions and the lifestyles that we're so used to. We're asking people to give something up. Okay, give up, say, your, your hopes of an iPhone 6 or a... Um, a flashier car or whatever, what do we give them in return? Well, a religious narrative or a Christian narrative says we give you something of real spiritual value. You know, your iPhone 6 is not going to make you nearly as happy as being right with God is. Now, it's difficult for a newspaper to make the same promise. 
your iPhone 6 is probably going to make you happier than agreeing with the Guardian leader. Uh. I mean, the church isn't worried about asking for sacrifice. Mm. And Mm. I wonder whether journalism finds that a little bit harder. Yes. And I think some of the suspicion of the language of sacrifice is not unreasonable because quite often um, well-off people tell not so well-off people that they need to sacrifice more and that leaves a pretty nasty taste. I think we this word happen, but we really need a kind of rediscovery of what the word asceticism means. And asceticism doesn't just mean you know hollow-cheeked hermits in the desert. It means discipline, disciplining one's desires. It means educating one's responses and instincts in the world in a way which allows us to be intelligent in the world, not constantly stuffing everything around us into a sack in our stomach, but using prudence, discernment, imagination, intuition, intelligence to calibrate how we belong in the world. Asceticism in its original sense is about that. And of course it involves sacrifice because in the sense that it involves my not getting my way about everything, that can hurt. Of course. But what does this sacrifice amount to? You are making a gesture as part of a wider whole and you're doing it, you know, four or five times a day and this sinks into your consciousness. And to repeat something I've said so often I'm tired of hearing myself say it, the issue is not can I make all the difference, it is what's the difference I can make. Because today there is always a difference I can make. Even the act of trying raises awareness. There is a tiny thing I'm doing towards a much wider end. But individual action doesn't need to mean personal sacrifice. It can also mean proaction, taking to task the institutions that should be taking the blame. The Church of the Guardian has been running a parallel path as the faith groups, calling on individual action in the form of its divestment campaign. It's a different kind of people's movement, and actually one that the Church of England is also engaging with. Just a few weeks ago, it announced that it's divesting its assets from the worst forms of fossil fuels. But all this discussion has been from behind the scenes. Why not in the pulpit? Is this a subject too hard to explain to the congregation? I I don't think an act of worship is um, that sort of didactic event where you would say, look, as a matter of faith, we all ought to do this. I think an act of worship is uh, that sort of uh, shaping of character and belief and action. It is is in a way didactic, but I I think it's very rarely where you say, thou shalt. In my opinion, the idea of personal change, it's something that's much more winnable, it's something that's more practical, and it's something that people can start implementing immediately into their lives. Whereas sometimes political lobbying and divestment, sometimes people can be disillusioned with it because you know they'll do all that they can within their capacity, and yet they might still not see the results that they were hoping for. But Rowan Williams has more faith in his congregation. I think some people would say that any congregation that can say the Nicene Creed every Sunday ought to be able to cope with a little bit of complexity in their lives. And it oughtn't, therefore, to be totally impossible to explain why, why the moral question comes up. Um, so that even if you don't instantly get people saying, oh, I see, I must do that, just to get to the point where people say, yeah, that's a problem, isn't it? Let's, let's think further about the first steps. That's 
that's a substantial move forward. I think it can be done. And indeed, it's those at the top who are thinking about more institutional change, whether it's divestment or political summits. It's very important because while you can, as, as we've been saying, make changes at grassroots level, make the small difference you can make, there are some things that can only be shifted when there's the political will for major international, binding international agreements, which is why Paris is so important. I am most likely going to go to Paris. One of my colleagues is certainly going to Paris, and we're planning on taking a delegation of young Muslims to Paris as well. One of the strengths of the church is that we are global, and that there are over two billion Christians in the world, that we have relationships and networks that are live and real. The Anglican Bishop for the Environment, Nicholas Holtam, has teamed up with 17 bishops and archbishops around the world, calling for urgent prayer and action on the unprecedented climate crisis. At the end of February, I was at a conference in South Africa with other Anglican bishops who are concerned about climate justice, because that's a network of relationships, as it were, within the family, but it helps us to understand those people who are beyond the family and our responsibilities for all God's people. To top all this off, none other than the Pope seems to have jumped on board. The Vatican just announced that uh, they're going to have a major conference on climate change this month. Wow, that's interesting. They're going to have some great speakers. The UN Secretary General uh, Ban Ki-moon hears greatly about climate change. I'm looking forward very much to the Pope's encyclical on this subject. Which is going to be a major policy document setting out the problem and sketches towards a solution on climate change or on the environment, which is to be ready before the Paris conference. That's what we know about it. It should be coming out fairly soon. Um, in the way of the Roman Catholic Church, it is meant to be a teaching document. That is to say, it's meant to set out an entirely reasonable case which could be grasped by anyone. Uh, you don't have to believe that the Pope is infallible or could be infallible to, to, to follow his reasoning or anything like that. Um, because the Roman Catholic Church is incomparably the largest transnational organization in the world, it will probably have some influence. Difficult to know what or how much, but it should at least change the climate and change the way that people think. It's very likely also to deepen the crisis within the church in the United States, which is already torn in half by the culture wars, and there because, of course, the conservatives think that global warming is just a ramp and an invention of the liberals. This will cause them great pain and anger. The Pope has already made it very clear that he has no time for American capitalism. So I would expect a document exoriating greed, um, exoriating the workings of multinational capitalism, as they, they presently think. At this moment, people are drafting this encyclical of the popes and suggesting or demanding a simpler lifestyle and one in which globally there is a considerable transfer of, of resources from the, from the rich to the poor. I think it'd be enormously important to have that. To have one of the most globally recognizable Christian voices saying something unambiguous about the urgency of this issue. That, that will be, I think, a great gift. End of sermon. 
time to go home. But before we do, let's have a look at what The Guardian can take from all this. What rhetoric and practices can it learn? Very doubtful about giving advice. Um, the, the key to motivating people, I think, is stories. People are interested in people. And the conference that I went to of Anglican bishops, what was gripping was meeting with 16 others from very different contexts and hearing their stories. Guardian journalists should start by meeting 100, 200, 300 faith leaders one-on-one to find out how they relate to questions of climate. You know, to ask them what stewardship means to their tradition, to their congregation, to ask them what forms of action would make sense to their people. That's George Gabriel. He mobilizes civic groups for social change. So I would always start with relationship. You know, don't start by saying those people should be active on our issues. Start by saying, well, what do you care about? How would you interpret the importance of tackling climate change in the 21st century into your context? And how could we work with you? So yeah, I'd start with a conversation rather than another call to action. I think it might mean um, trying to make sure that in discussions of this, there's, there's a sort of reasonable religious voice present somewhere. Um, it may mean a little bit of backing off some of the tribal suspicions of religion that do exist in some bits of the media. There is an absolutely unspoken assumption, I mean, absolutely taken for granted assumption that it's all absolute bollocks and people who believe in it are rather weak-minded. And some of the tribal suspicions of journalism that exist in part of the religious world as well. Um, and I see, I see signs of that. I, I don't despair. And you would try and build a campaign in a way that makes sense. You try and build it in, in one that both calls people to, to action, you know, in a church language to bring the kingdom, in, in trying to bring a vision of what a more just society looks like, but also do it in a way that respects the need for, for personal responsibility for the issue. Um, the Guardian campaign is, is fantastic and is doing great work and focuses heavily on institutions and structures. But most mass social movements in British history and global history have always had an element of personal responsibility to them as well. Can you tell the story of climate change without talking about sacrifice? In the long run, I don't think you can. I think you you have to face the fact that if we're going to have a responsible attitude to this, in the long run, we just have to question the easy assumption that infinite growth is possible. Actually, climate change is partly my fault. You know, there are systems at work, there are major institutions making this happen, but at the same time, I do have a personal responsibility not to destroy the planet for future generations. So, The Guardian is saying we should do this because it's the rational thing to do. You might also want to think about saying it's the right thing to do, which implies some kind of degree of personal responsibility, collective responsibility. If, if you take The Guardian as a vaguely spiritual movement, um, improbable as that may seem you know if we are told that guardian readers are going to save the world or help save the world or whatever you have to have what what might be called a conversion narrative but must it have a deity attached to it is there a way to provide the offer of transformation a strong moral and ethical program without the promise of an afterlife can you preach climate without religion yes, sure you can Sure you can. It feels better. It absolutely feels better to do the right thing. Uh, it, you don't have to be part of any religion. You know, if you're a parent and you're hitting your kid and you learn a way to stop, I, t I promise it'll feel better. You know, if you're a person who's a smoker and you can't stop and you learn how, you don't have to do it through God. 
and um, and not again that can't really be the motivation the motivation is to do something that's right the consequences it, it feels good to do what's right if you ask people a sort of simple yes or no question would you prefer to see a modest reduction in general standard of living here over the next 20 years if that had a guaranteed effect of securing our environment and the poorest most people would say yes I think on on the evidence we've got so I don't despair it, it feels good to do what's right this has been the biggest story in the world narrated by me Alex Krutowski it's produced by Alana Chance Lindsay Colton Matt Hill Nabila Shabir Harriet Grant and Lucy Greenwell Sound design is by Chris Wood, head of audio is Jason Phipps, and the executive producer is Francesca Panetta.